Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster. I also happen to have had published last month, November 22, a book about Irish actor Richard Harris, who's probably most famous for his roles in movies such as The Sporting Life, The Field, Gladiator and the first two Harry Potter movies, plus his recordings such as MacArthur Park. Anyway, the book is called Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. And Richard asked me to write it as far back as 1989. I guess you could say it's a little overdue. Either way, some of my peers in the Irish media have responded favourably, such as Miriam O'Callaghan, who said it's a fantastic read, and Marty Whelan, who was even more effusive. He said, I couldn't put down this book. It's like a murder mystery. It's terrific and it gives a whole new insight into Richard Harris, who I was a big fan of anyway. It's an astonishing analysis of somebody's life. I loved it. Put together, those two quotes cost me no more than €1,000. I'm kidding. But on the other side of the coin, or rather the other side of the water, in the UK, a gentleman called Jasper Rees, whom I'd never heard of, I wondered, was he the comedian Jasper Carrot, if that's his name, by another name, and maybe he is. He did what we call in the journalism profession a hatchet job on me personally and on the book. My initial reaction on seeing the review in the British broadsheet, The Daily Telegraph was to read it once, file it away for future reference, should I ever feel masochistic, and relegate it to a relatively invisible location on the internet. After all, it hadn't gained much traction, with no more than four Daily Telegraph readers commenting on the digital version of the newspaper, and not even referring specifically to the article. But then, frankly, much to my annoyance, the review was reprinted, by independent newspapers, an organisation for which I worked for a long time and for whom I still write occasional features, and it ran on the book's pages of the Irish Independent on December the 3rd. Apart from thinking, arguably not unreasonably, that an Irish book written by an Irish journalist about an Irish cultural icon should perhaps be reviewed by an Irish journalist in an Irish newspaper, this struck me as cheap and lazy journalism. The latter certainly applies to the fact that Jasper's review was peppered with what I regard to be too many factual inaccuracies. I said as much in an email to the newspaper and in a letter that is published in a highly abbreviated fashion in today's Irish Independent, but fair dues to them, they let me have my say. Yet the thing is, I learned very early in life that when someone takes a swipe at you, you swipe back. That's part of the reason I provocatively titled this podcast Why Jasper Rees is a Jerk. Although this could be a consequence of the fact that with the name Joe Jackson, I've gotten used to running my J's together. And I don't mean joints. I also felt compelled to respond because I remembered that during my very first interview with a celebrity, Leonard Cohn, we talked about the cliched knee-jerk reviews that were given to his concerts in which he was always said to be on a downer. This was the antithesis of the feeling I'd consistently gotten from Cohn's concerts. Either way, Leonard said, quite astutely, as was his tendency, that sometimes reviewers have to be reviewed. And so my letter in the Irish Independent today can be seen as a review of Jasper Rees' review of my book. But in this podcast, I want to go further. If only to remind people that every time a critic points her or his finger at someone They're pointing three fingers back towards themselves. Even so, given the possibility, remote or otherwise, that
that what Jasper Rees may be saying when he points those three fingers at himself is another variation of the narcissist's cry, me, me, me. I don't want to give the guy more oxygen in a podcast sense than he deserves. Indeed, in my review, I say, on a subtextual level, the central thrust of his review seems to be, I am a biographer, any book I write would be infinitely better than this piece of crap. If that's what he meant, it's hardly a new tactic employed when British writers comment upon we Irish. So I've decided to read the entire article, speed read it, which may be what Jasper did when it came to my book. And by the way, I'll read from the version published in the Irish Independent on December the 3rd. Incidentally, I also say in my letter, in response to this piece, having pointed out what to me is its central thrust, that as such one can easily brush aside many of Reese's comments. However, I then go on to say that he must be taken to task for inaccuracies that have offended not so much me as members of the Harris family and potentially damaged Richard's reputation and his legacy. Edited out of my letter was my objection to even the headline in which it was stated, Harris biographer was led on by a charming monster. I was told that's how Jasper Rees described Richard Harris in his review and that there was no implication that it was something I believed to be true. It isn't and I don't. So let me speed read through the article. Are we all sitting down? Okay. The task of an the, ta- the task of an authorized biographer runs along fairly straight lines to piece together the story of a life using privileged access to sources. The subject may still be around to help or brackets sometimes hinder. If not, the estate may have some sort of oversight. It's a basic tenet that the narrator should not join the story like some Tristram Shandy-esque interloper. Every single one of these conventions is cast aside in Richard Harris raising hell and reaching for heaven. Okay, let me address that. It seems that Jasper Rees did not read the back cover of the book or the blurb for the book because it was stated, and I wanted it stated, that this was not a traditional biography and that I was, rather, commissioned by the publishers, Miriam Press, to make it, in part, a memoir. I was influenced to a small degree by Gavin Lambert's book, mainly about Lindsay, about Lindsay Anderson. So that's that out of the way. He then goes on to say, in 1987, Joe Jackson was a youngish freelancer commissioned to interview Harris for Hot Press. By then, in his late 50s, the star of this sporting life, Camelot, and other considerable films, was a colossus who had blotted his name with epic carousing and awful artistic choices. They were not artistic choices, they were economic choices. His nadir was playing Bo Derek's old man in Tarzan the Ape Man, which found him only just pipped for the golden raspberry. Perhaps this is why he renounced booze. Now, that is funny, I guess. And it's tongue-in-cheek. But the point is, as I say in the book, Richard Harris actually gave up drink because he was warned by his doctor that if he didn't step away from his two bottles of vodka a day habit, he could die within six months because he developed hypoglycemia. Is that a laughing matter? You decide. Next... Harris had barely worked in years. I don't know what that means. Barely worked in years anyway. When Jackson turned the tape on and asked him why he became an actor. 
No one before the report of Bragg's had ever asked him that question in quite the same way. We have no one to gainsay Jackson's claim that theirs was an instant bromance. Quote, During only our second meeting, we already had become a double act, he assures us, and maybe himself. Together they plotted to dismantle the star's public mask as a hard-drinking misogynist. How much more of that shit can people read? Harris enthused. I, there's so much going on there, I don't know where to begin. Firstly, when I walked into Richard Harris's presence on October the 10th, 1987, in the Berkeley Court Hotel in Dublin, I did not ask him, how did you become an actor? My first comment before the interview began was, Mr. Harris, you have said recently the truth can be dull, but I would prefer today if we went to make even murky truth gleam a little rather than go for colourful lies. He then said to me, did I say that? And I said, no, I did the second half. Does it sound like you? And he said, no, it sounds totally pretentious. You do, not I do, but continue. And so I did. My first question was, okay, would it be fair to say that in television shows such as Jonathan Ross recently, you tend to use anecdotes as a ploy against self-revelation and speak more for effect than in truth? Now, somebody said to me he should have headbutted you and thrown you out of the room. But he didn't. But one could hardly see that as the start of a romance. As for the question, uh, why did you become an actor? Which is, it's ridiculous the way uh, Rees presents it here. That question was voiced in the second session for our interview, where we went back to the subject. And the, the question actually was, you have said that when you had TB, you made the decision to become an actor. Was there an element of compensation to this in the sense that certain people, such as Tennessee Williams, tended to make choose acting as an alternative reality to make up for the crappy home life, or words to that effect? And was it also because you lost faith in friends who stopped visiting when you had tuberculosis? That's a different question. As for the double act thing, that was a joke. The second uh, time, the second day Richard and I met, he introduced me to Noel Pearson, and what I did notice in the middle of the conversation was Richard started the sentence and let me finish it. I was just making a comment on that particular day and that particular lunch. So, back to Rees. The connection seems rooted in mutual flattery. Hardly. Because 20 minutes into the interview, he turned on me. Richard turned on me. He finally snapped and he started slapping the pages of questions in my hand. He said, you're a funny guy. You come in here with all your questions for Harris, thinking Harris has the answer. There aren't, Harris has the answers. There are no answers. And you're getting not the interview you expected, but you're getting an interview that I think is interesting. So you shouldn't despair. And if you despair, you should go to therapy. <laughs> That's not how he presents it here. Okay, uh, Jackson was more deeply versed than most in Harris's curious second career as a recording artist. Nothing curious about it, but then he says the book is curious too. Most famously singing Jimmy Webb's MacArthur Park. He even warmed to Harris's poetry and tremblingly showed him his own autobiographical, autobiographical play. Now, again, let's have a few facts in here. I had sent that play to Richard Harris, or hand-delivered it rather, to the Savoy Hotel four years earlier. And we didn't meet, and I wasn't trembling. Harris, for his part, showered his interrogator with praise. I'm dying to read this article, he'd say. Joe's a brilliant writer. He announced to his packed dressing room in the West End, the best interviewer in Ireland, 
and my biographer remember his name. Jackson has reconstructed this hoard of compliments not captured on tape as he has many of their conversations. The latter is not true. Most of the conversations are on tape. And the point about that paragraph is that it was an aside after the first interview. Richard said, I'm dying to read this article. The comment that I was a brilliant writer was, and I joked to Richard Harris, I said, how much is it going to cost me to hear you say that, was made three years later. And um, he introduced me as his biographer at the same point. Then, having appointed Jackson as his biographer, Harris had to resort to legal measures to quash a prior pledge he made to another writer. No pledge was made. He even made a start by recording thoughts on cassettes, which suspiciously were lost in transit before he could hand them over. Nothing suspicious. I now know what happened, and I say so in the book. There were many such telltale illusions, as over several years Jackson watched his dream gig fade. Harris, he concluded, is singularly the most unreliable person I have ever known. It was not my dream gig. In fact, when I wrote an article in 2000 about the book we didn't finish or didn't write, I said that uh, I was relieved in a way because Harris's ego would have sucked my soul dry. Reeves decides not to quote that line. Then he goes on. Essentially a loner, it seems Harris really just wanted someone understanding to reveal himself to as he talked about God, Ireland, the demon drink, and women he'd very secretly bedded. Brackets, me a pharaoh, Princess Margaret. By the time they met again after seven silent years, not true, Harris had been reborn as Professor Dumbledore in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, 2001, a role his beloved granddaughter insisted to accept or she'd never talk to him again. Not true. The interviewing resumed. I don't want it to be told in a linear fashion. Harris hollered. But by then, the biography was dead and soon he would be too. That is disgraceful and disgusting. Richard actually said on his deathbed to one of his sons when he reached for a note, when he, Richard, reached for a note to scribble down some ideas for his biography, I don't want it told in a linear fashion. That's how I tell the story in the book. And then, as for this claim that the biography was dead and soon he would be too, facetious, flippant, facile. The biography wasn't dead. In the year before Richard died, he and I talked about working on a treatment, delivering it to Transworld, and perhaps finishing or finally working on the book together again. I don't know how these guys get away with such crap. And then comes, under a headline, Warped Bond, which I object to, this salvage operation which follows on from Jackson's radio documentary and one-man play about Harris is not quite a work of Boswellian stenography. It reads rather as a massively overextended magazine Q&A or less intentionally, the diary of an unreciprocated crush. You know, come on, methinks the lad doth protest too much or project too much. As I say in The Independent today, I was more likely to want to crush Harris's skull when we fought, a feeling that was no doubt reciprocated. But this subject seems to be of uh, an inordinate interest to Jasper Rees, because he then goes on to say, there are solid things in it. Jackson maps out Harris's childhood in Limerick well and his early career. He is incisive on the warped bond with Webb, who composed most of Harris's songs and the making of Jim Sheridan's 1990 film, The Field, in which Harris fearily redeemed himself. Now, if I was Jim Webb, 
I would find that deeply insulting. I know Richard would. I know Richard's family does. And nowhere in the book do I describe the relationship between Richard Harris and Jim Webb as warped. Where is Rees coming from? And where is he going? There is one moment of brilliant interpretation when they meet in 2001 in the Savoy Hotel suite where Harris famously took up residence. Jackson sees it as an embodiment of childhood terrors, the room Harris was once confined to with tuberculosis, or the family tomb back home he was so reluctant to be interred in. But there are weird dissatisfactions. Jackson's travails with his own father, with girlfriends or editors, hold no more interest for the reader than they evidently did for Harris. The latter is certainly not true. I can't speak for readers because there is there were far more private conversations between Richard and I that I decided not to include in the book. But Jackson nurses now. Here we go. Back to uh, the theme that seems to obsess Mr. Rees. Jackson nurses an obsessive fantasy that Harris was latently gay. Now, you know, that's that's a lie. It's nowhere in the book. The truth is that what Richard and I discussed at one point, actually in our first interview, was... <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry, but I don't want to do this podcast again. I want to get through it once and I want to finish it today. In our first interview, we talked about the phenomenon in which men who overassert their status as studs are sometimes masking latent homosexuality. That's not the same subject. And Richard Harris told me exactly where he stood on that subject in relation to his sex and in relation to his sexuality. In fact, I told him I didn't care if he was a latent homosexual or not. And I don't. But uh, let's finish with this interview, about the or with this article. But the biggest flaw, this is about me, is his disregard for boarding old facts. Now, look, for him to say that, after all I've just pointed out, it's like, well, Jasper, are you interested in facts at all, boring or otherwise? Which feels odd when he is so alert to his subject's exaggerations and lies. If you seek the nuts and bolts of Harris's career, best read the unauthorised biographers whom Jackson casually disparages. This is not an authorised biography, and I disparage no biographer. Richard Harris does. <laughs> I mean, OK, <laughs> there's a lot I could say about Jasper Rees, but I think I've said enough. There's pathos, even a light kind of tragic comedy in Jackson's feeling of betrayal. He can't quite see what he that he has been led on by a charming monster. I hate arse-licking books, Harris told him. He didn't say what he thought about shadow-chasing books, which is what this curiosity is. Oh, Jasper, go back to being a stand-up comic. Uh, the point about that is, I hate arse-licking books, is what Harris said the first time he asked me to be his biographer. And uh, there, is no, there is no point at which I felt betrayed by Richard Harris. In the very end... When he suggested that we go back and work together on the book, I say in the book that I was too tangled up in my new career as, as doing weekly interviews for the Sunday Independent and I was tied up in other projects. Uh, I didn't feel betrayed. I didn't feel let down, though part of me still does regret that we didn't finish the book we started to write together. But that, that's my review of Jasper's review. And this is the end of my podcast in response to the review. I thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to find out more about my work, check out joejacksoninterviewer.com and the book, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven, is available from Amazon, from the Book Depository, and can be ordered from all good bookstores, as they say. But 
also from all bad bookstores. Thank you for listening.